0: If you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 4. For some of you, this sounds a lot like deja vu. You have, you have experienced this before. Uh, deja vu is that, that weird out-of-body experience that, that you, have, you know what's happening before it happens, or you've seen something that you've seen somewhere before, and it sounds or thinks or feels somewhat familiar, but you can't quite place it. Some of you can place it. We are reading, and in the, in the bulletin there is a discussion over the exact same verses that we had last week, and I assure you it's not because I want a redo. Um, I, there were things in that sermon that I didn't like, and I would like to change and go back and do it again, but that's not what we're doing here. We're not trying for a redo, and it's not because this is my ever-so-favorite passage. I do love the passage, um, and then I'm just going to keep preaching it week after week after week until you guys kick me in like a record I, I move forward. That's, that's also not what's going to happen. What we want to do is we want to look at certain aspects of this text to to delve a little bit deeper into it. And last week, what I think we meant to do was to cover the very clear and obvious and surface meaning of the text, and that is that Jesus comes to this woman at the well and he presents to her everything that she could ever need. He talks to her about not the the water at the bottom of that well that refreshes for a time, but living water that he can give to her, that he is the author of life, that he is the one who can give her all these good things. And how the gospel spreads by dealing with sins, by being greater than the things of the world, and all of that was true and good and glorious. And by looking at it again, I don't mean to sideline those truths, but I mean to highlight those truths by what we're going to talk about today. As you might have noticed, John seems to love sort of a dual interplay between Jesus and the people that he's talking to. At least three times already in the book of John, and we're only four chapters into the book, Jesus has spoken to people, and they have misinterpreted what he has said. So in two nine, when the Jews come up and ask him about a sign, they say, or excuse me, two eighteen, the Jews say to him, What sign Do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? John records then in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus is talking about something, and they are understanding him on the the literal level. This temple, destroy it, and I'll build it up in three days, and they understand him there. But John understands that Jesus is talking about something completely different. In chapter 3 in Nicodemus, John and Nicodemus again cross paths. Nicodemus understands better than most what Jesus is getting at when he says, You must be born again. In John John chapter 3, verse 3, and then again in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 5, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus understands something of what he's saying. I need to be born again. But he, he asks the questions that talk about, well, how am I supposed to make myself born again? He misunderstands that Jesus is talking about a work that the Spirit does in someone. And even here, In our text before us today, this woman continually, time and time again, thinks that Jesus is talking about flowing, living water, living water that's not in a cistern, living water that flows like a spring, that isn't filled with algae and bacteria, but water that is good and refreshing for you. She thinks that he's talking about water like that, but he continually is talking beyond that. He's talking about water that wells up for eternal life. Sort of water that will give you Life forever that will never make you thirst again. So, Jesus oftentimes is talking at a different level than the people who are hearing him or understanding him. And the question then becomes what if John in his narration is also doing the same thing? So, you have heard of the movie Inception where there's dreams within dreams. Well, this is depth within depth. So people in John's gospel are missing the meaning of Jesus and oftentimes we are then missing the meaning of John when it comes to certain passages and I think that this is one of those passages. John means for us to understand something not different than the surface meaning but deeper and more um, fundamental than the surface meaning of the text. I pick this up here because of John's mentioning of Jacob multiple times. In verse 3, where it says he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. And then in verse 5, we read that he comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now that is a setting of a scene. And as far as it goes, there's nothing terribly interesting about that. It's Jacob's well. That's great. And and it was in the field that Jacob had sold to Joseph. But the question is, why, why mention Jacob there? Why set the scene by giving us a geographical description that we really don't need? The fact that Jacob sold the well or gave the well, or excuse me, Jacob sold the land to Joseph actually has no import in the text at all. The fact that it's in Galilee or the fact that it's in Samaria is really all we need. And what's more, the fact that he mentions Jacob's well again is superfluous because the main question of the text in verse 12, where the woman looks at him and says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He mentions it all over again. He doesn't need to say that it's Jacob's well because the woman says it in verse 12. I think that John is front-loading all the Jacob language because this particular incident is going to sound a lot like something that happens in Jacob's life. Now, we need to be careful when it comes to stuff like this because we don't want to read into Scripture. We don't want to read more than is there. But I think that we are warranted by the parallels between the story and the life of Jacob and what Jesus does here to think that we are not making too much of this. So let's think back through Jacob's life. Now, as we go through this, we are going to be summarizing most of the scripture that we're going to talk about, so there's really no need to flip back to Genesis, but if you want to, we're going to be talking about Genesis 15 through about chapter 30, and we're going to summarize that pretty quickly. Jacob's story begins with his father Isaac. Isaac. Isaac was born to Abram, but Isaac was not the only son of Abram. Abram had two sons, Isaac and he had Ishmael. But Ishmael was not to inherit the promises. That was only to Isaac. Isaac was the promised son. Eventually, over time, Isaac is the only son around Abraham as Abraham sends Ishmael away. Isaac takes a wife from among the people of his father, Rebekah. And while Rebekah is pregnant in Genesis 25, we read this in verse 23. She is fighting, or the two boys inside her are fighting, the twins inside her are fighting continuously, and she cries out to the Lord, and the Lord says this to her in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The older is Esau. Esau comes out first, and then Jacob comes out after him. And as it just so happens, that prophecy is about to be fulfilled. God has chosen Jacob, but he has rejected Esau. And the, Isaac does not know this, and Rebekah likely doesn't put this together from these things, but Rebekah loves Jacob, and Isaac loves Esau. So when it comes time for Isaac to give the blessing that he received from his father Abraham, and Abraham received from God down to one of his sons, he goes to Esau, and he says, Esau, listen, You're a hunter in the field, and I love your game. So go out, kill me something good to eat, bring it back, prepare it like I like, and then I will give you the blessing. Rebecca overhears this and thinks, well, we can... uh We can side like that and we can do something better than that. And so she tells Jacob to basically cheat his brother out of his inheritance, out of the blessing. And so she puts sheepskin on his arms because he is a clean man and and Esau was hairy and she puts his clothes on him and she makes the game as he likes and he fools his father who is basically blind and can't tell that this is not Esau. And he blesses him and the blessing that he gives him is incredibly important in Genesis 27, 28, and 29 because it sounds a lot like Genesis 12, 3. Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. That is the exact same blessing that he gave to Abraham. When Esau comes back, Esau says, Where's my blessing? And it's odd. Isaac simply says, There is no blessing for you left. I have given out the blessing. Jacob cheats his brother for. Very good reason his brother is quite angry. In Genesis twenty-seven forty-one, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In other words, once dad dies, he dies. I'm going to kill him. And that is not a minor threat from a man who is known as being a great hunter. This is what he lived his life doing. So rebecca has got a couple of problems. Rebecca takes Jacob and she says, listen, I want you to go far away. Your brother's anger is upon you. You need to get out of town. And as an added bonus, I don't want you taking a wife from the Hittite women because Esau had one of those wives and they were driving Rebecca nuts. And so she said, I've got a brother named Laban. Go and find Laban. And as Jacob travels north, From Canaan out to the land of Laban, he approaches a well and there at the well is a woman and that woman is Rachel and he sees her and she is beautiful and he loves her and he works for her to make her his wife. And from the union, not only of, and there's again, Jacob, the cheat, is now cheated by Laban, his father-in-law. And so he has two wives and their servants. And from those two wives and their servants, we get the entire nation of Israel as Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Now that, that is a lot of story to go over. The parallels here are important. First, the Pharisees are Esau. The Pharisees are Esau. Continually through the gospel of John, the Jews and the Pharisees as the particular head of the Jews are continually seen to be after Jesus in order to make him go away and even to kill him. Jesus leaves the southern region where he was baptizing people and moves north because he learned that the Pharisees had heard about him baptizing and his ministry growing. And he clearly seems to want to avoid interaction with them. Now, this seems to be somewhat innocuous, but the Pharisees are continuous trouble for Jesus in every portion of this gospel and in every gospel. Now, every once in a while, there's a particular Pharisee who's okay, but whenever the Pharisees are labeled as a group, they almost always want bad things for Jesus. In John 7.32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about Jesus being great and perhaps being the Christ. So the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. In John 11.57, after the raising of Lazarus, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. And finally, in John 18.3, Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came with lanterns torches and weapons in order that they finally might arrest him and put him on trial in order to kill him. Just as Jacob was chased out of his land by his brother Esau, threatening to kill him, if not, if not other things, Jesus likewise is traced out of where he was working by the Pharisees. Now those who had claimed to be the people of God, the Pharisees, by relation to the Jacob, are now no better than Esau. So again, the important part about this is the Pharisees claimed continuously in the gospel that their father was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and because of that, they were in the family of God. But by labeling them this way, by putting that little information there in verse 1, when the When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. If we are to read this in light of the story of Jacob, which I think that we are, it seems like Jesus is running away from them just as Jacob ran away from Esau. In other words, they are persecuting the chosen and promised son just as Esau persecuted the chosen and promised son. The people of Israel... The people who are by genes related to him are no longer the people promised to God. You are not in the promised people simply because you're related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are promised to God because you are related to Jesus Christ by faith. Listen to John 3.36, right before our passage. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. John 1.12, all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God, those who believe in his name. It isn't enough to simply be related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Pharisees show themselves to be no more than Esau, a rejected child, one who is not of the promise because they rejected the true promised child of Jesus. Why is this so? It's because by rejecting Jesus, they've rejected Israel because Jesus is Israel. Jesus is Israel here. Remember, when we think of Israel, we think, typically think of the entire nation, but That entire nation was named after one man. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So the nation of Israel is something akin to the nation of Jacob. It is the same idea. It's his name. Jesus then here becomes Israel. He is loved by God while his brother is hated. Now Jesus is the one who is from God and from whom the people will be defined. The people in the Old Testament, the people leading up to this point in time, were known as the people of God and they were defined by God's people because of their relationship to Isaac and to Abraham and to Jacob, but no longer. Now the people of God will be known by their relationship to Jesus Christ. He is replacing Jacob as Israel. For from him and through him will come the nation and the kingdom. In Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. I will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel was not his firstborn son in that sense. Jesus Christ, the true and good Israel, is his firstborn son in the real and true sense. The central question of the text lands in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus' answer is not simply coming out and saying yes, but he talks about what Jacob gave her, which was good and right and true, and what he can give her. What does he say there in verse 12? Or in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, Jacob's kingdom, Jacob's nation, the nation of Israel, was indeed great. It provided for the people. There was land provided for them and there was physical protection provided for them. Even Jacob, in giving the well to the woman and giving the well to his people, provided for them in the things that they needed of this earth. But because it was of this earth, because it was frail and fragile, it was always doomed to destruction. It would never last for eternity. You would always have thirst again. You would always need to dig another well again. The physical protection that the Old Testament provided was never going to be enough against the nations because people are sinful, and sin degrades the things of the world. Just like the well, the kingdom of Jacob was doomed to destruction. Jacob's kingdom was one of this world, based on physical protection and provision, based on fleshly obedience, but ultimately doomed to failure. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It is not based on the flesh, but it is based on the spirit. When he is before Pilate in the trial, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? He says, you have said so. And Jesus then responds to him further. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not from here, and all the better for it. His kingdom is not of the world like Jacob's kingdom is from the world. Jacob's kingdom is from the world, therefore all he can give you is a well that's filled with water that can keep you alive here. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I can give you what is better that will well up in you for everlasting life. The woman herself, by the way, is an indication of the failure of Jacob's own promises, of his own nation. She is there because the northern kingdom could not sustain itself, could not keep itself from sinning, and therefore God sent the Assyrians in and kicked them out of the promised land, sent them into exile. It was their own sin that leads this woman to not understanding the God that she is worshiping. It leads to the division between Jew and Israel in the north is because of sin. This woman is a living testimony to the fact that Jacob's kingdom didn't last and that God had to blow it asunder. But Jesus is a living testimony to the fact that God's kingdom reigns forever. Jesus is Israel here, and he is showing that his kingdom is better than the kingdom of Jacob, and it is better than the kingdom of Israel. Lastly, Jesus has come to take a bride, and the nations are the bride. The nations are the bride. Notice how marriage language sort of fills up not only this scripture, but even leading into it. What is the metaphor that John the Baptist used in chapter 3? Verse 20. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the husband. He is going to take himself a bride. And we find And then the focus on Jacob sounds a lot like Jacob's going to the well to find his wife. And from that wife, he will make the entire nation of Israel. And Jesus then goes to a well and he finds there a woman, but she is nameless. We don't know what her name is. We don't know what her name is because it doesn't matter. She stands in for all of the nations. She stands in for all of the foreign peoples. Jesus is calling them to himself. He's not just calling Israel, but he's calling all people to themselves. And even then, within the passage itself, Jesus goes out of his way to ask her about her husband. Where is your husband? Why don't you go and call him and have him come to me? Why can't. You're right. You can't. You don't have a husband. you've had five husbands and the one you're now with is not your husband. In other words, there is rampant sexual sin in your life, which is like adultery, which according to the Old Testament is nothing more than idolatry. Continually, that is the picture of adultery and idolatry go hand in hand. The nations were engaged in adulterous relationships with gods that were not gods, with gods who could not live up to the calling of the one true and living God, with gods that were made with hands and made out of brick and stone and wood. They were no true gods, and therefore they were no true husbands. But now Jesus is calling her, getting her to acknowledge the fact that they are not real husbands for her, and now he will call the nations who are husbandless to himself, and he will be the bridegroom for them. Jesus here offers himself to the nations to take them for his bride. As he says himself, it is not so much that salvation is for the Jews, but salvation is from the Jews but it is for all nations. He travels north into a foreign land and calls a woman to have eternal life as a spring of water welling up in her. That is the good news that has been proclaimed to all nations. As we celebrate Advent, this is good news for all nations. A Savior has come who is going to be Christ our King. He will be King over all things, but he will also be a husband to all peoples. And all who come to him might know him and understand him as not only their King, but their husband. Jesus is indeed Israel, and if he is Israel, then the nations are his bride. So just as Jacob ran from the murderous Esau to gain a wife and make a nation, so Jesus has gone away from murderous Jews in order to gain a wife and to make a nation. He is Israel. The nations are his bride, and we see this played out in this passage before us. Listen, the good news is you don't have to belong to Abraham, you don't have to belong to Isaac, and you don't have to belong to Jacob by physical descendancy to be in the kingdom of God. You need to believe in Jesus Christ because he is Israel. To all of the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are given fully and most assuredly in Jesus Christ and to no one else. So that now it is clear, even being related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is no guarantee of anything. If you reject Jesus Christ, you have rejected Jacob. And if you reject Jacob, you reject the promises. These are not the only comparisons that we are to make. It is clear, I think, that John also wants us to compare this woman with Nicodemus. Jesus comes to both of them and he talks to both of them. These are the longest passages we have of Jesus speaking. And these two people could not be more different. Nicodemus was a Jew. Nicodemus was a man, Nicodemus was a ruler, and Nicodemus was a teacher, and all of those things, and each one gives him more cultural leverage than the last. This gives him a social standing and a clout that is substantial. If you were to go into the first century and ask them, can you point me out, somebody who might be saved? If you think anyone around here, is approved by God. Who might that be? Nicodemus would be one of the first people pointed out. He is approved by God. He is accepted before God. That man has salvation. The woman is on the other end of the spectrum. She's a Samaritan, a despised half-breed. Even calling her half-breed is probably close to what the Jews might have thought of her at the time. She's a woman. She's a known sinner, She's socially outcast, not just from the Jews, but from her own people. And being a woman means she had a lower social standing anyways. And given the fact that she's come to the well at noon, given the fact that she's come to the well alone, means that she has almost no social standing at all because going to the well was a communal affair. She's going when no one else will be there because no one wants to go with her. Nicodemus has everything going for him socially. This woman has nothing going for her socially. If you were to ask, who are you assured of being condemned? That would be the woman picked out first. As much as Nicodemus would have been accepted by culture, she would have been rejected. And yet it is clear that both need Jesus. They both need him. They both can't get where they need to go without him. Nicodemus seems to have all of it together, but Jesus is very clear. You can't see the kingdom of God without me. And without being born again, without the Spirit working in you, you've got no chance to enter the kingdom of God. This woman has nothing going for her, and yet Jesus offers her everything. Friend, don't ever think that you are too great to need the help of Jesus Christ. Every single one of you needs him. And you will never reach a place in your life when you will have it made so that you will think, well, I have now surpassed my need for Jesus Christ and I can be present before God as I am in myself. You are never going to be there. You are always going to be faithless. You are always going to be worthless in the eyes of God outside of Jesus Christ. And outside of the spirit moving in you, there is no way that God is going to accept you as you are. On the flip side of that, realize that there is no sin that takes you so far away that God cannot bring you to him. There is nothing that you do that God cannot redeem. There is nothing that you do that makes you so bad that Jesus will spit you out of his mouth. If you are accepted and you hear the call of Jesus, that come to me, those who are thirsty, and drink of this water, those who come will be saved. Those who come will be saved. Those who reject because they don't think that Christ is able or they reject because they don't think that they need Christ or they reject for any other reason. As John says in verse 36, the wrath of God remains upon them. You can have the greatest man who ever walked the earth sans Jesus Christ and you can have the worst sinner who has ever walked the earth and both are accepted before God by the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ and by nothing else. Because Jesus Christ is Israel. Israel. Because Jesus Christ is God. Because Jesus Christ has made a way for the blessings of Abraham to come to all people. Whether they be Jew or whether they be Greek. St. John is a careful writer. And careful writers always reward careful readings. And if this is a dream within a dream, we should take note of the surface meaning and note how the surface meaning of the text matches very, very well with the things that I just got done saying. Jesus Christ has the freedom and the power to offer salvation to this woman who has no earthly right to salvation because he is the son of God. He is God's firstborn son. He is the one in whom all the promises of God become yes and amen. Those who believe in him will be saved from sins known and unknown. Whether you are the woman at the well or you are Nicodemus, God can save you. His spirit can work at you. He can make you alive again and you can be accepted before God. And because of this, Jesus deserves respect, honor, glory, and praise. Certainly during this Advent season, we remember that this child was given to us for our salvation. He is Israel's strength and consolation. He is the hope of the earth. He is the desire of every nation. And he is the joy of every longing heart. So let us stand and praise the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray first, though. Father, we thank you for your word to us through John. I pray that we see better your plan in Jesus Christ and adore him more because of what we've heard today. I pray that we will understand the nature of your plan of salvation better and entrust ourselves to one whose kingdom will never fail, who will always be our rock and our Savior. May praise and glory be to you and Jesus Christ, your Son, forever, for he is our our salvation, and for in him you and you alone are well pleased. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.